This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Wednesday, September 5th, 2018, from Slated to the Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Bob Woodward is out with a new book, and as befits one of the great practitioners of the nonfiction form, it apparently builds a fairly strong case that Donald Trump, our president, is impetuous and vacuous and angry and attentive, cruel, dangerous, incompetent, mucus. Let us remember mucus. Our acronym for Trump's habits that most imperil the country, mentally unfit, cruel, unethical, stupid. And to that, based on Woodward's reporting, we could add easily distracted and also ineffective. That last point alone was demonstrated by the odd tape that Woodward released of his interview with President Trump about President Trump not being interviewed for his book. Ah, would that he could ward off Woodward. The Washington Post titles uh, its annotation of this tape, quote, the mind-blowing chat between Woodward and President Trump. Well, mind-blowing in the sense that, yeah, I can't believe this guy's president. But everything in that call was a private or semi-private reflection of everything that we always knew about Trump and a bit of what we knew about Woodward, too. Trump's staff won't let him sit down with Woodward. Probably the right move. Trump throws his staff under the bus. Says he doesn't talk to his spokesman, Raj Shah. At one point, he puts Kellyanne Conway on the phone with Woodward in what seems like a rebuke to her. And then he decides that the book is going to be critical of him. He doesn't know anything about the book. Well, first of all, how could he know? It's a book. What's he going to read a book? He probably, though, figured out that it's going to be a critical book based on two things. One, Woodward's an observant person. Two, he's been watching his presidency quite closely. He can't admit it, but he knows it. He's a terrible president. And so he says this to Woodward, and I'm going to play a little presidential call karaoke where I chime in with what I would have said or what I wish the reporter had said. Let us hear from Trump. I'm just hearing about it, and I heard, uh, I did hear from Lindsay, but I'm just hearing about it, so we're going to have a very inaccurate book, and that's too bad. No, but I don't blame you entirely. Be accurate, I believe. No, right. Okay, well, accurate is that nobody's ever done a better job than I'm doing as president, that I can tell you. So that's, uh, and that's the way a lot of people feel that know what's going on, and you'll see that over the years. But a lot of people feel that, Bob, so. A lot of people. Woodward could have said that, right? He could have said, a lot of people. Or he could have said, Mr. President, nobody's ever done a better job. I'm just going to, let's just talk about two. Lincoln during the Civil War, Roosevelt against the Nazis. Just, you're telling me you're better than them? Would have been nice had Woodward said that. Woodward's not going to do that. We know that he heard what Trump said. You know that he's very dissatisfied with it, but he acts all Woodwardy rather than getting just once, just getting on tape, someone calling bullshit on Trump. But what Woodward did do, he was clearly turned off, so he ended the interview this way. I believe in our country, and because you're our president, I wish you good luck. Which is known as taking the high road, which is a good intention, but I fear also, like the saying goes, might just lead us straight to hell. On the show today, 
I spiel about jade vaginal eggs and the celebrity who was rebuked for endorsing them. Wilford Brimley, what have you gotten yourself into this time? But first, Gary Steingart's new novel, Lake Success, starts off with a hedge fund billionaire who can't handle his son's autism. He flees New York City by bus. He's just gotten into a fight with his wife, Seema. Let me read to you from the New York Times review of this book. It was a somewhat critical review. But uh, let me just read this, and I'm doing this to make a point about the book and also the review. So, Barry fled Manhattan after Seema called him soulless at a drunken dinner party and after she and their nanny attacked him for nearly wounding Shiva out of frustration at his condition. He walked bleeding onto his first bus. Now, here's the thing. The review gets it wrong. It's a subtle point. And in the book, Barry says over and over to himself in his head, she called me soulless. She said I had no imagination. But the actual quote from the dinner party scene in the book is not that exactly. I disagree, Seema said. People in finance have no imagination. They have no soul. And I suppose you could extrapolate that insult as personal. But the point is that we have this drunken character who slightly misinterprets the comment, as we all might when we are drunk and defensive and, yeah, a little soulless. But it's this detail, this small detail, that he's driven by the fact that his wife insulted him as soulless. When she never actually insulted him as soulless, it's one of these details that makes Lake Success such a good book. And as you will hear now, it makes my interview with Gary Steingart a true pleasure. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Gary Steingart is not just a novelist. He's a very funny observer of where we are today. And his new book, Lake Success, is, well, it's one of those novels that, like so many of his others, is going to take the conversation and just define the era through his observations and wit. And just, I think he's now, Gary's with me here, I think he's embracing humanity a little more than he did before. Is that fair? Hello, Gary. Thanks for joining. Hey, how are you? Are you? It seems it seems like yeah. you gave your characters a little bit more of a break than you have in some of your last books. I'll, t- I'll tell you, um, <laughs> you know, uh, I had a kid since my last book, so I have a four-year-old kid. And now I have to kind of embrace humanity more because I just plan to like skin in the game. Yeah, I got skin <laughs> in the game. I was just planning to die at one point sure. and then leave the whole planet blazing and you know just self destructing. Mm-hmm. It was cool with me. I'd be like, yeah. all right, last one out. Uh, but what but, unfortunate you know, timing that the kid comes right before the Trump election. No, had you known, <laughs> I know. I'm serious about that. Had I known, like, what would I have done? You know, and I'm somebody who grew up in a in a totalitarian country, Soviet Union, and my parents were smart enough to get me the hell out of there. So you know, will I? When will I, will I know when to? 
leave. You know, well, that's your answer. Yeah. I mean, if totalitarianism inhibits the Steingart's procreation, there would mm-hmm. be no you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think it's totalit- negatively correlated. Yeah. I mean, sometimes totalitarianism makes it sexy. You know, you're like, oh, well, yeah. you know, it's a screw you to the system in a literal way. To, there are stakes. To breed. Yeah, there are stakes. I yeah. once read a book called uh, Sexual Relations in the Former Soviet Union, mm-hmm. and it was basically, the subtitle could have been Stupping Outside. Yeah. Because that's basically what had to happen. That's right. That's right. Everyone lived in these tiny apartments they shared with their with nine other families. So stooping outside, you know, and given the cold, the risky proposition, but yeah. um, a lot of people got born that way. Now, this guy, Barry, your protagonist, he should be really unsympathetic in a lot of ways. But I think I have a couple of observations about him and how he differs from your other protagonist. One is this. He seems to be physically more attractive than everyone. <laughs> is that true? Yes. He's my first decent-looking uh, protagonist. Taper, That's broad shoulders. Broad shoulders. Yeah, he's uh, you know yeah. he's a, got a swimmer's build. Uh, a woman mistakes him for John Stewart at one point. I, mm-hmm. I'm not sure that's a huge compliment, but I think yeah, probably in our world, in our world, clever, of Jews, clever yes. Jews. Yeah, he's, he's a hot looking, clever, <laughs> clever Jew. So yeah, I mean that was <laughs> that, he is by far my most attractive uh, protagonist. And know. there are plot reasons for that, which is you know he has to get with a couple characters along the way, and it maybe wouldn't make sense if people didn't know he was rich and still found him attractive. right. He can't reveal that he's rich, so um, you know, so he and and he's traveling by Greyhound, so everyone assumes he's one of them. Right. fairly impoverished uh, so having a, a nice punim as they say is, is, is very helpful yeah. when you're writing do you have the character physically in mind or can you go pages without saying oh this is how the world would react to him based on what he looks. It's interesting because most of my characters sort of look, you know, like a, a nebbishier version of me, except for Misha Weinberg in Absurdistan, who was 400 pounds. So I kept having to think, what would I be like if I had right. 400 pounds? In fact, as I was writing that book, I started. I was living in Rome and I ate so much the way an actor prepares to just be bigger so that I could write from that perspective. But here... I, I compliment your per, your commitment to that. Thank you. I, <laughs> yeah. I, am, I am the hardest working man in literature. Um, yeah, but here it was different because I, I did have to remind myself that he's not the typical guardian hero, if I may use that, you know, word. Uh, You're allowed to. I guess I am. You of all get permission to. Me of all people can use Stengardian. (laughs) uh, But but at the same time, you know, he suffers from a lot of the ennui and anxiety and all the other crap that, that Steingardian heroes suffer from. So even though on the outside he may look better, inside he's, he's the usual cauldron of despair. And a lot of the ennui that uh, Steingardian heroes suffer from is economic. And you'd think he might not have one if you didn't know the world of hedge funds where yeah. being worth $50 million is just cause no. for more anxiety. Oh, God, no, no. He sucks. I mean, yeah. having $50 million is a joke. And, and, and I think, you know, Barry knows it. Uh, he wishes he was a lot more successful because, you know, in, in the hedge fund world, having money, I mean, what does it work? After a certain amount of money, n- none of it really matters. Mm-hmm. The only goal people really want is to have their own jet, which does require a more substantial outlay. Um, yeah. So, and then know, there are the, like maybe an NFL team. There maybe, a of course, there's a couple more yeah. aspirational things. But really, the jet is the final sort of statement, unless you really do want to, unless you like sports so much. So he knows he's not that great. And I think it weighs on him. And in this world, the money basically shows you that you're right and somebody else is wrong because there's always a a party and a counterparty to every trade and you want to be the, the correct one and so to them it's a it's a huge ego having only 50 million dollars would be a huge ego blow to, to many of the people i've met how did you do you got into the world of hedge funds i read about uh non-ironically in the wall street journal complimenting <laughs> you for your research on the hedge funds i noticed the wall street journal didn't write the article on your research on the greyhound but we'll get to that <laughs> so did you consciously do that to get into this character yeah yeah of course no um i knew i'd be working with hedge funds so 
And I have a very uh, cool friend who is a financial reporter, and she introduced me to a bunch of these guys. And, and, and the nice thing was that many of them knew my work and were friendly, were very friendly. In fact, let me into their lives. You yeah. know, Now, th- that may have created some kind of self-selecting bias, so you don't get the real sort of bros, although I met a lot of bros on the way as well. But there was a feeling of, you know, um, I am meeting people as, you know, intellectual and sensitive as you're going to get in this world. In fact, many of them, you know, their backgrounds were sort of PhDs in math or physics and stuff like that. They weren't exactly, you know, Wharton MBAs like our president do. Do you have any thoughts on the concept of privilege as we as a society define it? We think it's great. You know, I mean, look, we, we're obsessed with money. We think more so than other parts of, of, of you know, compared to Europe, for example. I mean, we're, it's, it's the sole barometer of someone's worth in this country, you know. And I grew up poor and, and, and being poor was a moral failing, basically, seen as, seen as such by everyone around me. And I Even think for your parents who had to flee a country? No, and... I'm talking about the people, the Americans around us, right. you know, but, and I think that for, I mean, Trump got elected because he's a billionaire in, in so many ways, you know. And, and except were, maybe the actual literal except way. the actual yeah, literal yeah. way. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And there were, you know, <laughs> and there were people on the Greyhound. There was one man who was, I believe, you know, disabled and mentally disabled. And he told me he was voting for Trump. And, and I said, you know, why? And he said, because he's got the best and the brightest around him. He kind of spurted it out. He's got the best and the brightest, the best and the brightest. And he's a billionaire, you know. And I think that that is, you know, that we, we value success in business so much, but the success in business often does not translate into, uh, you know, into success elsewhere. And, J- and Barry at one point wants to start a urban watch fund. He's a watch collector. So he wants to start a fund for, you know, urban disadvantaged youth where everyone gets gets a Rolex, right? And that may sound stupid, but, you know, when I'm hanging out with these guys and they all have these, not all, many of them have these these political ideas, you know, and sometimes it really, they actually work at, you know, charter schools and all that. How different is that really from what Barry's trying to do? You know, they think that because they succeeded in this very esoteric world, they can make it successful in, in, in real life. Yeah. And they'll ask a question, does it scale? And they do, they fail to realize that the uh, populations they're dealing with aren't exactly everyone they hired, which are quants from MIT exactly. and Princeton. Hey, if I, if I manage to get... Get this guy who graduated eighth in his class at MIT to produce on a superb level. Why not an inner yeah, city kid? Yeah. yeah. No, there's this huge, and it really. I was talking to a woman who was, I would guess, late twenties, and she worked for a big, a very big bank, and she was talking about Occupy, and she said, "Well." She said, I had to step over them on the way to work and I didn't like it. And if only they knew how much, how hard I worked, they were just there sleeping on the pavement. But I, I get up at four in the morning and I head to the office and I work sometimes 20 hour days. If they knew how hard I worked and, you know, and it was this great sort of, well, working hard is the excuse for everything because right. I, I work so hard, I can do anything. There's no moral culpability, you know? Yes. The reason I asked about privilege, what I think I meant is I think a lot of people maybe would get a description of your main character and write him off as having privilege, as if there can't, well, not so much that there can't be dimension, but that as if that said more about him than anything else in the world. And I don't think you have that attitude. No, and it's interesting, you know, I mean, I... Uh... One thing that I that connects me to people like Barry is, um, first of all, he's lower middle class. I grew up, I guess, mostly lower middle class than maybe middle middle. But he's he's from Queens, you know, which I am and which our our, our dear president is, you know. So all these and, and he's a striver, you know. And when I think of people like like when I had to base a character, like, I kept thinking to the people I met when I went to Stuyvesant High School. Mm-hmm. I, I went to a Stuyvesant reunion recently, of course. Gazillions of those people that work in finance, you know, uh, some more successful than others. But um, that feeling of fighting for the, you know, the tiniest 
percentage of your GPA the same way that you're now fighting for the tiniest basis points in, on your Bloomberg terminal. You know, there's this, there's a real connection. That's why I felt like I could write about this guy because I know how sad it is. You know, you keep wanting approval. You're, you're, you're doing all this for your parents' approval. Your parents will never approve. It's, it's this giant conundrum, you know. I kept asking this one guy, you know, so what do you think this other guy's problem is? And he said his mom never loved him. You know, it was that simple. Yeah. All right. The last thing I want to talk about is the name itself. Lake Success, real name. We grew up uh, in a similar time, in a similar place. And I was also fascinated and compelled by the name Lake Success. And I would always hear it. Would you, one of the local radio stations has its transmitter in Lake Uh Success. uh And they would, the tag would be broadcasting at, and then they'd say Lake Success. And I would always wonder. (laughs) I I understand towns have aspirational names and also names that are divorced (laughs) from what they mean, like Garden City, town on Long Island. But think about it. A Garden City? Is this a Babylonia? No, they play lacrosse there, whatever. But like the, the idea of the lake being correlated to not not lake successful lake success success yeah success. fascinating it is fascinating look um, don't forget that the great gatsby took place in the, those neck of the woods a little yeah. bit further up in probably i mean guess part washington and great neck maybe yep but um, absolutely that and and we you know when we started our american journey in kew gardens and we sort Q, of which is i think people in new york will not know is spelled k e w k e w exactly <laughs> not q yeah and so we kept you know, and we almost got to the Long Island border. Little Neck was at the very, very edge. It was right there, and that was a whole different world. Great Neck would be the next bar, the next town, and then uh, and Lake Success would be, you know, directly there. And, and I remember hearing that that word, and yeah. just Lake Success conjures up just yachts and you know all kinds of yachty stuff and wasps yachting along, and it really was a kind of giant symbol. And Barry also, his, his father lives in, in Little Neck, um, and they're just you know, it's like you're just. There. The yeah. promised land is literally the next yard over, but you can't quite make it there. Well, as we've learned, those are actually, it's something named Lake Success would not have yachts. What people with the yachts would do is call their mansion a cottage. Right, right. exactly. They always downplay exactly. it. They always downplay it. I said I went to school in Cambridge. Right, uh, right, right. 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 Cambridge, Whereas yeah, Lake yeah. Success or a mall like Green Acres, right. which is like the number one mall to get your car stolen <laughs> from. Another uh, place, geographical place that I always thought was overly aspirational, Mount Freedom, New Jersey. Mount Freedom. I, was, I didn't even know about that. You didn't that. know about Mount no, Freedom? No. Uh, wow. I would <laughs> like to climb that mountain one day, but it's not going to happen anytime soon. Yeah. I enjoy Mount Freedom. And then there's another town in New Jersey, and I think this is just a coincidence, but a lot of the uh, Orthodox Jewish businessmen vacation there, and it's called Deal. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> deal, New Jersey. Yeah. Have you heard of Deal? No, I've never heard yeah. of Deal, but I, I love it. D- between uh, Deal and Mount Freedom, I think you might have your next book. Yeah. <laughs> Mount Freedom. Mount Freedom is a great title for a book. Gary Steingart is the author of Lake Success, his newest, his latest, his greatest, his lakest. Thank you, Gary. Thank you. And now the spiel in Jade Vaginal Egg News. Yes, the Jade Vaginal Egg beat never stops. You give us 22 vaginas, we'll give you some eggs. So Gwyneth Paltrow, her health lifestyle slash mystical healing tent goop, has had to pay $145,000 to California state prosecutors over claims that a jade egg for the vagina that it was marketing did not do for the vagina what Goop said it was supposed to do. Let me read from the Goop website describing some of the properties of this egg. One, working with a jade egg 
is more than just putting a stone up your vagina. But to be clear, it is putting a stone up your vagina, which the state of California, we should say, does not regulate unless Brett Kavanaugh. Okay, but California officials took issue, not with the selling of vaginal eggs, not with the fact that some people would want to tell you that vaginal eggs are the next greatest thing since vaginal pancakes, not the fact that some people like to put eggs in their vaginas. It was the unsubstantiated claims on the Goop site that they made about the benefits of inserting the stone into the vagina, which is how King Arthur came to lead the land. Goop also didn't offer any disclaimers. They didn't say, you know, just the pro forma, your vagina may differ, or eggs and vaginas may feel larger than they appear, or people allergic to vaginal jade eggs should not use vaginal jade eggs. Even a simple, now to be clear, your vagina may already have eggs, and why do you need another one up there? Even that was not said, and that caused concerns among state prosecutors. Now you're saying as you're listening to my coverage of jade vaginal eggs, back off, Mike. You know, you're not above hearing the news of Gwyneth Paltrow's settlement with the state of California over undocumented claims that were made about the benefits of the jade vagina egg, but you say I'm reveling in it too much. Okay, I will back off. I found this coverage is provided by Bloomberg, and they have the story read in a much more detached, in fact, it's a robot AI voice. Let them tell you what happened. Gwyneth Paltrow's Goop pays $145,000 over jade vaginal egg claims. Goop Incorporated, the lifestyle company founded by Oscar-winning actress Gwyneth Paltrow, agreed to pay $145,000 to settle allegations it made on scientific claims about the benefits of three products. The case involved Goop's jade egg, a $66 item inserted into vaginas to enhance sexual energy, the rose quartz egg, a similar product, and inner judge flower essence blend, a tincture. Is that worse? Isn't that worse to hear from that computer guy? I think so. So cool. So undetached, unlike the properly used jade vaginal egg. I prefer the tabloid style for this story. Headline, CA's DA's Negs Eggs, or Hoo-ha Brouhaha, California Annoyed at Vaginal Spheroid, Golden State Regs Strike Vaginal Eggs, Is Gwyneth Finished Over Claims This Eggle Beat a Keggle? Okay. I've had my bit of fun here. I take no pleasure in such tomfoolery. You should know. I just do this because I'm a newsman. This is serious business. While the egg is the product that Goop was marketing that drew the most attention, can't understand why, and while they were fined, there is a more serious point to the Gwyneth Paltrow empire of healing. And it's this. It's bullshit. The gist is against bullshit. You know that. If you want to engage in harmless bullshit, that's fine. I will even allow that some of the bullshit you're engaging in may one day turn out to be useful, uh, perhaps manure for a fertile field of growth and enlightenment. But a lot of it just isn't that. There's a group called Truth in Advertising, and they brought, it wasn't a lawsuit, but they brought attention to Gwyneth Paltrow's goop practices. I'll read from some of their letter to um, the board that eventually, sorry, I'll read from some of their letter that touched off this entire investigation. TINI, Truth in Advertising, .org, has cataloged a sampling of more than 50 instances where the company, Goop, claims, either expressly or implicitly, that products can treat, cure, prevent, and then they list a lot of stuff. Like carnelian crystals said to treat infertility, or grounding 
which is walking barefoot outdoors or indoors using one of several goop promoted everything gear products. And they say that this can cure insomnia. Goop's jade eggs, these are the ones we're talking about, can prevent uterine prolapse. Goop's essential oils can, quote, help tremendously with chronic issues from anxiety and depression to migraines. Psychology is real. Psychology is powerful. The placebo effect is a documented phenomenon. There really is a mind-body connection. And if these products give some people some comfort, I suppose there is no harm. On the other hand, if you have depression, treat your depression. Don't rub some ointment on yourself. There's a direct line to this way of magical thinking to the anti-vax movement. And that hurts my kid and your kid. And not just Gwyneth's kids, apple and potato. One of those may be inaccurate. But there is also a line, a less direct line, but a line in believing in benign nonsense of a self-healing sort to believing in malignant nonsense of a self-harming sort or an other-harming sort. So don't take the great fun that we've all had over this one egg for anything less than a condemnation of the whole omelet that is Gwyneth Paltrow's empire of feminine flimflammery. And that's it for today's show that just was produced by Pierre Bienname and Daniel Schrader. Collectively, they are known by the adjective Bienna Schradavial. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, does his job with Lichtaiitude. The gist, like Shavian, to refer to Bernard Shaw, we changed the pronunciation a little bit. And when we really hit our stride, we say we're sounding positively just a various. Umpru depru duperu, and thanks for listening.